name's Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, telling you what the papers don't say and reporting it without fear or favour. This week, has the BBC lost its bottle? We'll hear from one former staffer about the corporation's curious reluctance to report new revelations about the Prime Minister's affair with Jennifer Arcuri. The roots of this is fear of the government. They don't want to do anything that's going to rock the boat. They're absolutely terrified. Plus, stop funding hate. The campaign group trying to prevent media companies profiting from content that stirs up resentment against migrants and minorities. The problem we've got all over the world, actually, not just in the UK, is that hate sells. And as more and more advertising has moved online, it's become easier and easier to make money from hateful clickbait. All that to come. First, a reminder that there's no clickbait as far as the Byline Times is concerned, because we don't rely on advertising. Nor are we propped up by a media mogul telling us what to say. Instead, we're supported by people like you, ordinary readers and listeners who take out a subscription. £36 a year buys you our wonderful monthly paper, The Byline Times, and also helps support Byline TV, our brilliant news-breaking website and this podcast. It means we can serve your interests, not those of government or big business. Get more details on how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. Now, has the Beeb lost its bottle? While other mainstream news outlets were revelling in details of Boris Johnson's relationship with his mistress, Jennifer Arcuri, after she told all in the Sunday Mirror, the nation's public service broadcaster was noticeably quiet. Were they just too high-minded to feed our prurient interest in Bojo's love life after Ms. R. Curie revealed they'd had a passionate four-year romance when he was Mayor of London? Or were they failing in their duty to hold the Pinocchio PM to account? Given that Johnson was married at the time of the relationship, there were surely legitimate questions about his character. And all the more so, given that Arcuri's tech startup received more than £100,000 in taxpayers' cash, and she accompanied him on three overseas trade missions, despite apparently failing to meet the eligibility criteria. The BBC's former Baghdad bureau chief, Patrick Howes, said in the Byline Times that the corporation was afraid to cast the Prime Minister in a bad light. We'll hear from him now, alongside Byline Times editor Hardeep Matharu, who wrote to the BBC asking why their flagship news programmes had ignored the story. Why had she been so concerned? The curious thing that people started to notice was that BBC News didn't seem to run any coverage of these new allegations of recent weeks that Jennifer R. Curie had made. And that was even though the London Assembly reportedly said that it was going to expand its inquiry to include uh, looking at these new claims, even though, again, Boris Johnson's press secretary said that there was no case to answer. So this notion of, you know, he he was almost clearing himself of any wrongdoing. Allegra Stratton, his, his press secretary, said he always acted in terms of the wider principles of integrity and honesty. But again, this raised serious questions. And, and why, was the B- why was BBC News not covering this? So last week, 
I approached the BBC to find out why. It was an obvious question. So at that time, when I approached them, the last article BBC News had run on this issue had been published last May. And it was about how the Independent Office of Police Conduct found that no criminal inquiry would be necessary with regards to these Arcuri claims. And I said to them, well, what about these new allegations? Surely it's in the public interest when a story has a significant development to report on this, to inform people about this. And I have to say, I found the response fairly extraordinary. It wasn't something I was expecting to be as stark as it was. So a BBC spokesperson told me that all stories are looked at in terms of their editorial merit and that the BBC has reported on this issue when there have been substantial updates and that we can continue to report on it as and when it was necessary. And I just found this this suggestion that this perhaps these new allegations were not a substantial update, a substantially newsworthy update to be to be really eye opening, to be completely frank. And a lot of people, certainly on social media, agreed that how, how could this not be something that the BBC takes it upon itself to inform its viewers and its audiences of. Around the same time, BBC Newsnight did do a segment looking at how to regulate standards in public life. But again, ironically, that focused on the sort of the claims around lobbying and Greensill with regards to the former Prime Minister, David Cameron, rather than Boris Johnson and, and the Arcuri claims. So it was all very sort of a, a curious turn of events. And two days after... I asked the BBC the question. A news article appeared on the news site, uh, which was about the Conservative Party saying that it had provided financial support to Boris Johnson when the Independent Office for Police Conduct was conducting an inquiry into his relationship with Arcuri. And it made a passing reference to new allegations, new claims have come to light fr- from Jennifer Arcuri. But it I mean, certainly didn't go into any, any great detail. And Patrick, you wrote in the Byline Times that you thought the BBC's lack of coverage was, in your words, consistent with the corporation's desperation to avoid a fight with the government. The BBC were backing off from covering this story. Yeah, I I think the most remarkable thing for me about this story is how unsurprised I was that they didn't run it in a way, because it's part of a pattern. It goes back a long way, and and I think it it goes back to Brexit, basically, where the BBC was desperate not to offend the Leave side, and this has carried on. And you know, I, I talked to you know, I've still got many friends in the BBC, and you know, people I've worked with and who I trust, like, respect. Quite a lot of them are telling me that this isn't a one-off. This is part of a pattern. One mentioned that, if you remember, at the beginning of the corona crisis, Boris Johnson missed five COBRA meetings. I mean, that was mentioned, it was covered. But, the, for example, the Radio 4 6 o'clock news, which I always regarded, and I think many of my colleagues always regarded, as the sort of gold standard of BBC broadcast journalism. I've heard this from a couple of sources that they wanted to do more about it. They wanted to do pieces about why Boris Johnson was missing these COBRA meetings and how it could possibly be justified. And Milbank wouldn't do them. 
Milbank, for people who don't know, is the nerve centre of the BBC's political coverage. Yeah, yeah. And it's carried on. So what's happening? Well, you know, I think, and friends of mine who, who still work for the BBC think, the root of this is fear of the government. They don't want to do anything that's going to rock the boat. They're absolutely terrified. Britain is very fond of Second World War analogies. For many English people, the Second World War is history, and there isn't any other history. Well, I'm going to take a bit of Second World War history and an analogy, and it's appeasement. Britain was terrified of Hitler. It wanted to do everything it could do to avoid going to war with Hitler. And so it rained back. It caved in again and again. And the BBC is doing this with Boris Johnson. This is what's happening. As with the 1930s, these people that they're trying to appease are unappeasable. They hate the BBC. They hate the the fact that it exists. They want to get rid of it. And until they get rid of it, until it's dead, they want it to be docile. And the BBC is playing into their hands. So who are these people that you're describing? It's a sort of quite broad coalition, but it includes Rupert Murdoch. It includes the extreme Brexit wing of the Conservative Party. It includes the owners of the Daily Telegraph and the Daily Mail. And they are determined to push Britain in a particular direction. And the BBC has decided that it's not the BBC's job to tell anyone that this is happening or to shine a light on it, just to allow it to happen, be a conduit through which Britain's political discourse can travel without any influence editorially from the BBC, basically. And of course, Hardeep, the BBC Director General, Tim Davey, is a former Conservative Party candidate. The chairman of the BBC is a Conservative Party donor. Should we be concerned about these particular links? Yes, I mean, I think we should, particularly in light of everything Patrick's just highlighted around the general direction of the BBC in recent years, I would say accelerated by the EU referendum of 2016, the whole debate around Brexit, which did create this massive polarisation in British society, but which I think was a real, a real difficult moment for the BBC, especially in its domestic news coverage as to how it reports on that. I think Patrick, I agree with Patrick that we seem to have a fairly punitive vote-leave government that has a very particular direction for this country. And why I found the lack of coverage on the new Curie claims so concerning was because it not only has Byline Times reported on these questions of conflicts of interest with regards to Tim Davey and Richard Sharp, who we revealed in January had donated more than £400,000 to the Conservative Party since 2001. Not only do we have that, but we have constant announcements of cuts to various parts of the corporation, its coverage and reconfigurations. And we have incidents like the reprimanding of Charlie State and Naga Manchetti in the past month, where they were sharing a joke with regards to the size of the Union Jack flag behind Robert Jenrick, a government minister. And Naga Manchetti was made to apologise. There was a big 
furor about that, about the BBC doing the country down, not being patriotic enough. I think taken with all of this, you know, in the round, there is a concerning creep towards a direction that's much more focused on polarizing debate, much more focused on this notion of a culture war, and yeah, focused on not casting Boris Johnson and his government in a poor light at a time of a public health emergency. So with Brexit, I think the BBC found itself in a difficult territory because it was such a polarizing discussion in terms of the country. And here again, we have the coronavirus crisis, which is a public health emergency, which I think, again, the BBC has felt kind of torn as to how to how to really report on that. Does it investigate what's gone wrong, hold the government to account in real time? Or does it sort of follow the government lines and, and their updates? And again, these, these are two different approaches journalistically. One thing that's worth saying, Patrick, is that you and I have both earned a living, me as a freelance over many years for the BBC, you as a as a staffer. And when you're inside the BBC, it is actually made up of many interconnected, but often quite separate feeling departments. From the outside, it can look like a monolith, the BBC. From inside, it actually isn't really like that. So I made a documentary for File on Four last year about the failures of the government at the start of the coronavirus pandemic. And I think that was the first BBC programme to really pick apart the failures to lock down early enough and so on. So as journalists, you can have a certain freedom within the BBC. It isn't just this one thing. And it does give you, if you're in the right place at the right time with the right people, opportunities to tell these stories as well. So it's I'm just trying to say it's a slightly nuanced picture, isn't it? Absolutely. I remember um, a very experienced correspondent once looking at me, shaking his head and saying, don't you realise that the BBC is not one thing? It's a coalition, it's a mixture. And he compared it with the Iranian regime, <laughs> where there, there are hardliners and there are all sorts of conflicting trends and traditions that often don't make any coherent sense at all. And of course, that's true. It has an enormous range of output, which is a huge strength. And there are bits of the BBC that have done very well, I think, in telling these stories. But I think my big concern is that the core, and it, it, it basically boils down to BBC Westminster, the BBC's domestic political output has just been not good enough. John Sudworth, the BBC's Beijing correspondent, only last week, he was forced out of China and to go and live in Taiwan and work from Taiwan. And he has done a fantastic job of holding the Chinese government to account. And it's come at a, a big personal cost in terms of harassment and stress on his family. And he's had a very, very difficult life. But he's been courageous and he's gone for the truth and he's held these people to account. Those aren't the standards that BBC Westminster works by. BBC Westminster will basically ring up number 10 Downing Street, get a quote and tweet it. I'm sorry, but that's just not good enough. It is not good enough. I worked for the BBC in Baghdad, and there was a time when there was a dispute about the number of people who'd been killed in a particular period after the bombing of a Shia shrine. 
So what did we do? We went to the morgue and we counted the bloody bodies. BBC Westminster thinks it's enough to ring up a press officer or ring up somebody in number 10, previously Dominic Cummings, no doubt, and get his take on it and just put it out and tweet it. If you remember the Barnard Castle story, that was broken by the mirror, Pippa Crera. Before the ink was dry on that story, before it, it, you know, the paper had even gone to the newsstands, people in the BBC, senior correspondents, were tweeting, you know, none of this happens, it's all been blown out of proportion, uh, number 10 tell us uh, this isn't a story, don't worry about it. I could go on, Cambridge Analytica, the rebuttal of the Cambridge Analytica story came before the Cambridge Analytica story actually got published. The BBC was there with the other side before we'd heard the allegations. And this isn't right. This is not right. This is not what journalism is. It's not what the BBC's for. Something has gone seriously wrong. Mm, and I think, I, I mean... I think that is a core part of, of the problem. Another Byline Times writer, Peter Oborn, has reportedly said in the past that one of the reasons he's been told by senior figures within the BBC as to why it's reluctant to report on politicians lying is because it erodes public trust in the political process. But I think going down this path of omitting certain information, a lack of investigation, relying on government sources for information, also has that effect. It, it erodes public trust in the institution of the BBC. And, and that's a really sad thing. I mean, I didn't ask the BBC about the Jennifer R. Curie coverage because I don't like the BBC or I want it to be defunded. I don't. I love the BBC. Like so many people in this country, I grew up with it. But I do think there's this distinction that Patrick's making between the political domestic news coverage and its wider remit it needs to be looked at. And last week, when Patrick and I were looking at these issues, I remembered a 2019 documentary I had watched. It was the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. So the BBC produced a short documentary. I think it was presented by John Simpson, the World Affairs editor, who was there at the time. And he was talking about how in October 1989, Mikhail Gorbachev landed in East Germany and the state-controlled broadcaster sent around all these, all of this newsreel about crowds waving and people celebrating. But at the very same time, people had already started taking to the streets in Leipzig and started marching against the regime, saying this had to end. And at the time, John Simpson described how Western reporters were forbidden to go and film these protests taking place. And so he and his cameraman decided they had to, they had to do it. And so they took a black sort of hold-all bag, cut a circle in it for the lens of the camera to stick out, and they went and filmed the protest sort of undercover. And within weeks, the, the Berlin Wall had fallen and the BBC had captured that spirit, that unstoppable protest against East Germany and the division of the country. And it was, a, you know, this big moment of history, the BBC was there. And that spirit of investigation, uncovering the truth, I think to some extent it did exist in terms of the BBC News's political coverage. But over a number of years, first Brexit, the coronavirus crisis, 
And now, unfortunately, the arrival of politicians who do not play by the rules, they don't care that they don't play by the rules, they are willing to dodge accountability at any juncture. I just don't think the BBC is equipped now to deal with the climate we're in. And that should be, I think, something that concerns and upsets all of us, because it is still the only broadcaster that reaches huge swathes of the British public. It really, you know, my parents sit down to watch the BBC. They might not not buy newspapers, but they watch the news. And so if they're not being told certain things by the, the broadcaster with potentially the biggest reach, I think that's really concerning. And for some people, they will just remain uninformed. And for others who are more informed, they'll infer sinister intentions in that. That is something that does concern me, because I think talking to my family, you know, I've got a family in all corners of the United Kingdom with a full range of political views. And a consistent theme is a decline in trust in what the BBC is telling them. And this is my big concern, that in appeasing these unappeasable, powerful people, the BBC is actually losing its core support. And without that core support, it doesn't have a future. A stern warning there from former BBC Baghdad Bureau Chief Patrick Howes with Byline Times editor Hadith Matharu. As to why the Johnson, our Curie story, hadn't received more coverage, the BBC said stories are chosen due to their editorial merit and the BBC has covered the issue substantially when there have been newsworthy updates. For example, when the Greater London Assembly said it would resume its investigation into the Prime Minister last year and when it was announced that he would not face a criminal investigation. We will continue to provide updates of this story when necessary. My name's Adrian Goldberg, reporting without fear or favour for the Byline Times podcast, funded by subscribers to the Byline Times. For details on how to subscribe, go to bylinetimes.com. Now, we've all rolled our eyes, I'm sure, at headlines in the red top tabloids, which love to demonise people who don't conform to the remarkably narrow worldview of their editors and proprietors. Muslims, migrants, asylum seekers, trade unionists, single mums, travellers. The list of those who have been othered by the British press is a long and rather depressing one. A classic example of the rich and powerful punching down at the weak and vulnerable. Step forward Richard Wilson, who decided to turn his disgust at what the papers said in print and online into action. He launched Stop Funding Hate, which mobilises supporters via social media with the aim of targeting advertisers whose cash supports these outlets. He's been telling me how it all began. Well, the starting point for Stop Funding Hate was in the summer of 2016, when there was this huge surge in hate crime on the streets of the UK, people being targeted because they were seen to be foreign, Polish people being targeted, people from the Muslim community were targeted, and and actually there was a general surge in hate crime across the board. And a lot of people I knew were really concerned about what was happening. And it was sort of clear, although this was happening in the context of the, the referendum in 2016, this surge in hate crime on the streets had been preceded by this huge surge of anti-migrant front page stories in the UK press, which had been going on for years by 2016. What was 
really surprising, I think, to a lot of people was that even after the referendum was over, the newspapers kept on pumping out these inflammatory stories. And even when we were starting to see these horrible incidents happening on the street and hitting the headlines, this kind of anti-migrant sentiment carried on. So a lot of people were asking, what's it going to take to give the papers a bit of a wake up call and send a signal that this is not what people want to see? The idea that we hit on was to start talking to advertisers, because that's something all of us can do. All of us are going to be a customer of a company that's been advertising in the Mail, the Sun, the Express or another newspaper that's been pushing out those sorts of narratives. What kind of headlines were you concerned about? In that year, 2016, there were over 100 front page stories that presented migrants as a problem, as a burden, a threat. There was one headline in particular that talked about the cost of migrant mothers, migrant children, um, as someone married to somebody that wasn't born in the UK. That kind of hit home. It was just aligning migrants with sort of social ills, really. And what made you think that the rising hate crime was linked to those negative newspaper headlines? Well, this is actually something that experts in hate crime have been warning about for years. Even going back as far as 2010, we had experts warning about the link between anti-Muslim headlines and anti-Muslim hate crime. Then just in the summer of 2016, Leicester University put out a really strongly worded statement from their sort of experts on hate crime talking about the link between toxic coverage in the media and the hate incidents that they were seeing and witnessing. So you think there was a a pretty clear link between anti-Muslim sentiment, anti-migrant sentiment in tabloid newspapers and what happens on the streets? Yeah, we've even had examples of incidents being reported where the same tropes that are being pumped out in headlines are then being sort of reflected in the kind of abusive comments that people are hearing on the streets. And what was it about you then that decided, okay, I'm going to be the man who tries to intervene in this situation and try and make a difference? I don't think there was anything particularly special about the thought process that I had. I mean, it was the same thought that a lot of people were having at the time. I just wanted to do something about it, set up a Facebook group, started a conversation and hundreds of people joined that first Facebook group. Then over time, it just snowballed and it became clear that it was something that lots of people were concerned about. It wasn't just me. In a way, all of this got far, far bigger than I ever expected. And I never anticipated four years down the line, five years down the line, I'd be still running a campaign like this, really. And over the years, I think it's fair to say that people who we might broadly term progressive have fulminated against the excesses of tabloid newspapers like the Daily Mail, like the Sun, like the Express. The insight you had was that it was actually better to target the advertisers with your fury, with your anger, rather than targeting the editors or the proprietors of those publications. Yeah, and I guess maybe there is something about my background in that I worked for a long time as a as a charity fundraiser. I actually worked for a charity that got the papers every day. So when I went down to get my lunch <laughs> in the kitchen, I'd see all these headlines laid out. And I remember thinking, yeah, who's funding this? Who are the funders? So that was the thought process. But it wasn't a very complicated thought because you'd open up this newspaper that had a really toxic headline on the front. I saw my phone company advertising in, I think it was The Sun. So I don't know, it just seemed like a really straightforward angle that maybe just hadn't been picked up in such a big way before.
So then it's about mobilising on social media with the hashtag Stop Funding Hate, naming the large companies who advertise in these publications and encouraging them to withdraw their advertising unless or until the headlines that you find offensive are withdrawn. It's definitely about engaging with advertisers. We're always quite careful to sort of say, is this the content that you want to be associated with? And for some advertisers, they're going to be absolutely fine to be aligned with headlines that we might think are anti-migrant headlines or anti-Muslim headlines. But the one point I would stress that's really important is that this isn't simply about stuff that people might find offensive. And it's not really about anyone's subjective feelings about a headline. We're talking about content that's having a real impact in real people's lives. And that's where the sort of idea of hate speech is quite important because that there's a definition here of certain types of content that we know from history are just dangerous. And one example of that would be in 2015, The Sun published an article likening African migrants to cockroaches That was actually so over the line that the United Nations put out a statement warning that that kind of dehumanising language has a history going through the worst times of the 20th century of being a dangerous way to talk about a whole group of people. So the question is, if you're an advertiser, are you comfortable to be aligned with an article that's likening an entire group of people to cockroaches? given the context and given the history of that. What was the first campaign? The first action that we took was engaging, I believe, with Virgin Media, and that was around the sun. The initial call was for Virgin Media and every advertiser we could identify to just pull their ads from the sun and the Daily Mail and the Daily Express, those three newspapers in particular. These were the three papers who at the time had been most prolific in pumping out those anti-migrant headlines. And was it successful? Interestingly, Virgin Media never responded to that initial action. But just a few weeks after we launched the campaign, Lego announced on Twitter that they were uh, that they'd ended their promotions with the Daily Mail. And that was the one that really took the campaign to a new level and kind of put the campaign on the map for a lot of people. Was that your biggest success then, this apparent decision by Lego to withdraw advertising, perhaps in response to your campaign? It was actually just the beginning when Lego pulled their ads from the Daily Mail. It helped to boost the campaign. I mean, it was one of the reasons that now the campaign's got over 200,000 followers on Facebook, over 100,000 on Twitter. But... It was then followed by The Body Shop, Evan Cycles, a whole series of other advertisers followed suit until it all sort of came to a head in actually early 2018. So what happened was that the Daily Mail put out this really bitter, ill-judged attack on the Olympic swimmer Tom Daly, who's obviously gold medal winning British hero, very, very popular who also happens to be gay. And Tom Daly and his partner had announced on Valentine's Day that they were going to be having a baby together. And it was a happy, positive story. The Daily Mail reacted with a column that was just nasty and vitriolic. It was one of those cases where 
we knew from very early on that this was something that had upset a lot of people because we were just seeing tweets very you know almost within hours of the, of the article being published people were responding to it before we'd ever actually said anything about it and people were coming to us and saying stop funny hate what are you going to do about this what are you going to do about it? so we just responded to that public outrage and encouraged people to challenge advertisers in the daily mail that day but also to take a screenshot of the advertisers that were showing on that specific article tweet those advertisers to again ask them are you really happy to be aligned with this that led to such an exodus of online advertisers from the daily mail in a pretty short space of time that after a couple of days we noticed that suddenly there weren't any ads appearing on that article at all or on the entire comment section at one point or the entire sort of opinion section of the daily mail all the ads just seemed to have disappeared and that was when we realized if they've had to do that then that's almost a sort of tacit recognition that they understand that this is not content that's actually going to be commercially brilliant for them to keep on pumping out and getting getting advertising on. And you make the point in one of your films that the move away from dead tree publishing to digital publishing has encouraged the rise of clickbait journalism. I mean, we all know that this is a commonplace and a truth about modern journalism. And you've identified that the things that drive digital reading are either cuteness or anger. So these stories which other migrants or other minorities which can provoke anger in some readers are precisely the ones which are likely to get well read. And I guess where you're keen to discourage advertisers from placing their ads next to. Yeah, that's the nub of it. That's the core of it. The the problem we've got all over the world, actually, not just in the UK, is that hate sells. And as more and more advertising has moved online, it's become easier and easier to make money from hateful clickbait. It's also nudged the existing media in a more sort of hateful direction because of the way that online advertising works. So the core long-term goal for Stop Funding Hate is to try and actually change that business model, challenge that business model to the point where actually it's just no longer so profitable to pump out these these inflammatory stories. You'll know your critics say, though, that that effectively amounts to censorship on your part and that people are free to either read or not read newspapers or online publications as they see fit in any case. Well, I guess I'd turn that argument on its head in a way and say, well, if a newspaper is publishing really extreme anti-Muslim, anti-migrant stories, which may or may not be true, and they're doing that partly at least because there's an incentive there from advertising money, then actually the advertising money is is influencing the editorial output whether they like it or not. And the question is, do they want to be responsible for pushing our media to become more and more extreme and in some cases inaccurate and irresponsible in their reporting? Or if you're a big global corporation, do you want to be a responsible advertiser? Would you actually prefer to fund media that tell the truth, that treat everyone fairly and that don't resort to hateful, inflammatory inaccuracies to get a few more clicks on their website 
So you're saying, in a sense, there's a, a vicious circle there, particularly with digital news, in that hate speech tends to increase readership. That, in turn, attracts advertising. That makes money for the publisher. That makes it more likely, then, for them to publish more hate speech in order to thus generate yet more advertising revenue. So you're trying to break that vicious cycle. Yeah, we're trying to break that cycle. At the moment, what's going on is that there's a completely negative influence from the way that online advertising works, which campaigns like Stop Funding Hate are are trying to kind of just counter and correct so that actually media that do a responsible job are better rewarded and the cowboys and the, the hate merchants aren't able to make so much money from that kind of activity. You mentioned earlier the article in the Daily Mail about Tom Daly, which was written by, written by Richard Littlejohn. Some of your critics have said, well, look, the Daily Mail was the newspaper that campaigned vociferously to bring Stephen Lawrence's killers to justice, that the Daily Mail campaigned against supermarkets giving away free plastic bags, that it campaigned for the release of the last British prisoner in Guantanamo Bay, and that by denying newspapers income, by stopping their advertising, you're actually restricting the opportunities for journalists to do what even you might regard as as positive work. That's an interesting question. And I think the Daily Mail is going to be okay. (laughs) I think we've obviously together the Stop Filling Hate Supporters community, they've they've had a wake-up call. They've been challenged on some of that more toxic content that they were producing. And the criticism was never that none of these newspapers have ever done anything good. The criticism was some of what these newspapers are doing is clearly harmful and damaging and divisive to our society. Newspapers like the Daily Mail are free to print what they like within the law, but people like us who who are concerned about it are also free to say that we don't want to have to pay for it and we don't want to have to subsidise it. And I think the other thing I'd say is that we've we've seen quite an interesting change in the last couple of years in that there has been a kind of acknowledgement, it feels, from the Daily Mail that there was a need to detoxify. A new editor has come in, and I'm not pretending for a moment that everything's as people might wish it would be, but we have seen a reduction in the more negative stuff, and it does feel like there's been a change of tone. And very interesting that the Daily Express, I'm sure that you wouldn't claim full credit for this as stop funding hate, but has moved markedly away from its previous position on migrants and minorities. They've got a new editor, Gary Jones, who in interviews has cited Stop Funding Haters, at least one contributory cause to that. Again, to use your phrase, to try and detoxify the Daily Express brand. Yes, it's been amazing to see that kind of reaction uh, from the Daily Express. And again, we would never in a million years have dared to expect to hear that kind of change and that scale of impact. And I think maybe what that reflects as well is that the only reason the Stop Funding Hate campaign has ever had an impact is because what we're saying is actually a reflection of what many, many people have been concerned about for a very long time. Really, all we've done is create a bit of a framework for people to take action together on the issues that they care about. I think it's been heartening to a lot of people to see that that's been received in that way by the new editor of the Daily Express. And it's not just the Sun, the Daily Mail, the Daily Express, who people might regard as, if you like, the usual suspects in this context. You've also 
cross swords with Channel 4. They had a Dispatches programme, and I think it's fair to say that Dispatches is normally a a very well-respected documentary brand. This was a programme called The Truth About Traveller Crime that upset many people in the traveller community. Yes, this was last year. So we're coming up to the the one-year anniversary of that programme being broadcast. And I think it's a really good illustration of the fact that this problem of inflammatory, toxic media content does actually pop up across the media. It's it's absolutely not just the three tabloids that were the initial focus of our campaign. And it's absolutely true that media that might be considered to be more on the sort of progressive side of the spectrum are still sometimes producing really, really problematic content that needs to be challenged. When that program came out the shock and the upset and the trauma actually that we were hearing from people that we know and speak to from a Roman traveler background was was really striking I, I think the first thought that really hit me when I saw just the title of that program is can you imagine a program like that being made about another community if you substitute the word traveler for most other minority groups the way that it's kind of framing an entire community as somehow being prone to crime, I think would be more widely understood as problematic if it it was targeted at other groups. And certainly the fact that it's targeted to travellers and that so little was being sort of said in response, I think was one of the reasons that we decided to do something about it. And where is that story at now? It's a a year since that programme was broadcast. As far as I'm aware, Ofcom, the broadcasting regulator, has not made any final pronouncement on it. You were taking issue, I know, with the people who were advertising around it online on Channel 4's online site, all four. Yes, so this pushback was led by groups supporting representing travellers. So there's a a great organisation called Friends, Families and Travellers. There's another great organisation that we work with quite closely called the the Traveller Movement. And together they organise people to submit a huge number of complaints to Ofcom. Ofcom has a kind of target for how quickly an investigation should be dealt with and concluded. And they're now months and months and months past the deadline for actually coming to a conclusion about all of this. And that in itself sort of adds insult to injury for a lot of people, that they're just being left waiting and waiting and waiting to hear if their concerns are going to be listened to and acted on. So in the meantime, we got together with the Traveller Movement and we organised an action where we mobilised people to challenge the advertisers that were appearing on the online version of that programme, which actually is still online now. But one thing that changed quite quickly was that after a number of the advertisers that had been contacted pulled out of that show, that online show on the Channel 4 website, they switched off the advertising there as well. And so at the very least, there's been something that people can do in the meantime to push back. I think I'd say one of the most important things that you've done is show that people can fight back. I was a football fan in the 80s, a young fan at a time when, as supporters, we were routinely abused by the tabloid press. I'm of migrant stock myself. And you see these headlines and other than not buying the individual newspaper concerned, you can feel pretty powerless about these assaults on your identity, on your being. Stop funding hate, it seems to me, was an ingenious way of of ordinary people fighting back and taking 
back some agency, some kind of control against these assaults? I think that's a really important point. One of the things that's been quite moving has been that so many people have said that being able to take action like this has given them hope. There was a comment that was made by the former editor of The Sun, David Yelland, who commented on one of the big moments that we had probably midway through the campaign. And he talked about seeing a kind of new balance of power with the way that people were able to get advertisers to pull from a newspaper like the Daily Mail. And I think actually what's happened is that there's a new mechanism that comes into play when you combine classic kind of consumer style campaigning with the kind of very cheap and very efficient methods of social media organizing. When you put those two things together, you can reach so many people in such a short space of time, mobilize and work together that I actually think we're just at the beginning of seeing the kind of impact that this new type of campaigning can have. And that's one of the most exciting things about where we are now. Richard Wilson from Stop Funding Hate. Also worth noting here that another campaign we told you about recently, run by Open Democracy, who were concerned about the awarding of a long-term NHS contract to controversial US data giant Palantir, has been successful. Open Democracy crowdfunded a lawsuit, and rather than face a legal challenge, the government has agreed to halt the contract and will engage the public via patient juries about whether firms like Palantir are appropriate for a long-term role in the NHS. More evidence that if people work together, even if the odds seem stacked against them, they can win. I'm Adrian Goldberg, and you've been listening to the Byline Times podcast. See you next time.